Appreciate Chuck uh, filling in for David. David and Michelle got the opportunity to go down uh, for a wedding. Also took the advantage of being able to see their son down in Alabama. So we, it's always good for them to be able to get away. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to Matthew 25. We're going to get there in just a minute. We welcome the Gerald campus and those who are joining by way of live stream. And uh, this morning we're going to continue our series. Before I do, I just want to say... If, uh, if you've been given a communion cup, we're going to do that at the end of the service, so you can kind of set that aside for right now. And also just want to just mention a mission project our church is taking on. You know, during the COVID uh, journey we've been on, we've kind of been locked down on doing much. But our ladies' ministry have kind of latched on to a young lady, and uh, her name is Sarah, and her little son is Journey. So there they are. So anyway, but anyway, uh, our ladies' ministry kind of latched on to this lady. Embrace Grace is a ministry where they take young uh, ladies who are with child, pregnant, and they try to encourage them to keep their baby, and they have Bible study with them. And Dina Clabunde has, has kind of joined up with Sarah, and they've been having Bible study together. And she's had, been given the unique opportunity. She's been given this home to live in, so there would be no rent, no charge. But it does take a little bit of work. And so Josh Ross is kind of taking on, kind of overseeing it. And he gave me a number of about $2,500 we need to raise. And that's just for material, so that's no labor. But uh, we're going to encourage some of our men to step in. We're going to need to put some flooring, some windows, a few things. But uh, what an opportunity to be able to give back. And it's just right up the street, so it's somewhere close. And so I just want to encourage you to pray about that. On the way out today, there's a little box in the back that says Sarah. And so if you want to give anything toward that, you can put it in that box. And again, we just feel like it's a privilege to be able to take on this mission project. I appreciate Dina for being willing to meet with her and connect with her and love on her. And also Josh is willing to kind of head up the project. So anyway, just wanted to share that right at the beginning. So we've been then doing a series on parables through the summer, and I've been doing kind of a mini-series inside of that series, and that's on how to wait for the second coming of the Lord. And I think I've mentioned each week, how many of you are good waiters? You love to just sit and wait, all right? Sometimes waiting can bring out the best and the worst in us, depending on the situation. But what does God want us to do while we're waiting for the second coming? And so we've been in Matthew 24 and 25. And again, I want to say the first part of Matthew 24, he gives signs about his coming all the way to earth. But the last part of Matthew 25 and all of our Matthew 24 and all of Matthew 25, he gives five parables on what to do while we're waiting for the second coming of the Lord. And so the setting is the Mount of Olives, and this would be a modern-day picture of the Mount of Olives. If you remember, the disciples had just come out of the temple, and one of the disciples was commenting how beautiful and magnificent the temple was. And so they crossed over the Kidron Valley, and they were over here on the Mount of Olives, and they were asking Jesus two things. And so this would have been a view somewhat what they would have saw back in that day as they looked across the Kidron Valley, they would have seen the temple complex. And again, it really was a massive complex, about 36 acres. Acres, they estimate that Temple Mount to be. And so they would be looking across the Kidron Valley and they asked Jesus two things. 
Tell us when will these things be? When will the destruction of the temple happen? That was number one. And the second thing, they asked, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And so they were asking him about the end of the age. And so that reference is to kind of give you a, a timeline here, as I gave you last week. Over on the left would be the Mount of Olives, and they were asking about his second coming. And I believe the Bible teaches in Revelation 19, he's coming back on a white horse. So that's why the white horse is over there at the end. And as I mentioned last week, the Bible says he's coming with ten thousands of his saints in Jude verse 14. So I just want to remind you, as I said last week, when we, when we study this second coming of Jesus when he comes all the way back to earth we also I believe are coming back with him so he's going to bring the bride with him as he comes back and so as you study the first part of Re uh, Matthew 24 Mark 13 Luke 21 and Revelation 6 through 19 as you study all those events that have to happen before he comes back that's also the events that happen before we come back with him. And so as, as we find out from history, Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. And so again, Rome came in and destroyed the city. And we're living in a period which we call the church age or the age of grace, which again, the prophets did not understand. Paul calls it a mystery which God hid from the prophets. That's why when Jesus came, they were expecting him to set up his kingdom right then they didn't understand there was going to be a period where god would allow the gentiles to be grafted in but i'm so glad that he did but the last seven years before he comes back to earth is what we call the tribulation period all right and so that's going to be again if you study that in matthew 24 mark 13 luke 21 our revelation 6 to 19 you're studying the events that will happen before he comes back. I think that seven-year period will begin with the Antichrist signing a peace agreement with Israel. Because pe people have asked, will there ever be peace in the Middle East? Yes, there will. At some point, the Jews will trust someone, and they will sign a peace agreement. And in the middle of that seven years, he will break his promise to the nation of Israel. But somewhere, the church has to be raptured out, because if we're going to come down with him at the end of the tribulation, somehow we've got to go up. And that's where I think the Bible teaches there's going to be two phases of his second coming. One, he's going to come in the clouds, and the church is going to be raptured up. The second phase of his coming is when he comes all the way back to earth. Now, I've kind of leaned toward the idea that we're going to be raptured up before the seven-year period. There are other Christians who believe we're going to be raptured up in the middle, and I kind of one of those pan-millennials that will all pan out. But anyway, the last three and a half years are going to be very, very intense. But while the church is raptured up, one of the events that I think will happen in heaven is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's important to understand because the parable we're going to look at today of the ten virgins is about the marriage supper and being ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And John just has a small glimpse of this. He only mentions it in two or three verses. But when John sees the marriage of the Lamb, which I will believe will be Jesus being united together with the church because the Bible mentions that we're the bride of Christ. It is amazing to think that God not only wants us in heaven, but one day in heaven there's going to be a marriage supper. It's going to be a celebration, and he's going to join himself somehow 
with us. And again, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around God wanting to become one with the church, with us. And when John saw that, he says in Revelation 19, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so again, we're going to be looking at the ten virgins who are waiting to go to the marriage supper. Five were prepared, five were not. That's why it's so important. Then he went on to say he fell at the feet of the angel who showed him this. Now again, John saw so much in the book of Revelation that he could have been overwhelmed. But when John got a glimpse that Jesus is going to become one with the church, I think that so overwhelmed John that he literally fell down and began to worship at the feet of the angel. And the angel said, do not do that. I'm just a fellow servant like you. But this morning, we're going to talk about the marriage of the Lamb, being ready for that marriage supper, which our parable talks about. And so if you remember, kind of going back, again, there are five parables that Jesus gives from the latter part of Matthew 24 through Matthew 25. The first one, he says, as we're waiting for the second coming, we need to understand it's going to be a very normal day. I mean, when he comes back for the church, I believe everything will be extremely normal. And he gives the example as in the days of Noah. Now, I've heard some people get up and try to make every possible parallel between the days of Noah and the second coming. And that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that when he comes to call the church, somebody's going to be building an ark. He's not saying that. He's not saying that the whole world is going to be corrupt except one family. The comparison he makes that as in the days of Noah and the, and the second coming, that people are going to be going about their everyday normal routine. People are going to be marrying and giving in marriage. People are going to be eating and drinking. How many of you eat and drink about every day? You just kind of make a commitment, all right? And so it's, amazing. it's just a normal day. We're going to eat, we're going to drink, and you probably have a wedding invitation sitting on your counter. Somebody's planning on getting married. And so again, it's just going to be an everyday, like in the days of Noah. People are going to be going about their everyday routine and they were unaware until the flood came in the same way there's part of his coming that he's going to come like a thief in the night now again people say well all these things have to happen and that's true for him coming all the way back to earth but i don't believe there has to be any signs happen for the church to be raptured up all right, and so again, the Bible says there, he goes on to say, there's going to be two women grinding at the mill, two uh, men are going to be out in the field, there's going to be two people in the bed, one will be taken and one will be left. And if you remember, again, from Jewish culture, for two women to be grinding at the mill, most likely it would have been a mother, daughter, or two sisters, because families work together. For two men to be out in the field, most likely that would have been a father, son, are two brothers. For two people to be lying in bed, could be a husband and wife, perhaps two siblings. But he's going to come back so fast that literally there's going to be no time to change your mind. One will be taken and one will be left. And that's why the emphasis in all five of these parables is watch, be ready, do not put off being right with God. Make sure every day you are waiting and you're ready for the bridegroom to come. And so he ends that first parable by saying, Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And so that's kind of the theme through all five parables. Watch, be ready, because you do not know 
when the Son of Man is coming back. The second parable we looked at last week, that while we're waiting, God wants us to be a faithful and wise servant, our steward. All right? And we talked about uh, the verse he shared, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master has put in charge of his household to give others in the house their food and supplies at the proper time. So part of what we're doing while we're waiting for the second coming is, again, it's going to be a normal, everyday kind of a day. But second of all, he wants us to be busy serving in the body of Christ. He's gifted all of us with spiritual gifts. And part of what he wants us to do while we're waiting for him to come back is just to serve the body of Christ. And as I mentioned last week, Christianity is not about how many people are serving you, but it's how many people, the privilege we have to serve others in the body of Christ. And so I want to encourage you, however God has gifted you, to serve. And I know I've been told many times in ministry, Pastor, 80% of the, of the people are, will do 20%, or 20% of the people will do 80% of all the ministry. It shouldn't be that way. I believe 100% of the people should be doing 100% of the ministry. I think God wants all of us to minister in the body of Christ. But after the second parable, again, he uses kind of the same warning. The master of that servant will come in a day when he is not looking for him and an hour that he is not aware. And so again, the emphasis over and over is he's going to come when we least suspect it. So part of what he wants us to do while we're waiting is just to serve in the body of Christ. Today we're going to look at as we're waiting, we also need to prepare in case there's a delay. What if he doesn't come back today? We need to make sure that we're preparing for a delay. And that's the parable of the ten virgins, all right? And so we're going to read it together, and I'm going to ask you guys to join me, if you will. Let's read together from Matthew 25, the first 13 verses. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lampstand, took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. And while the bridegroom delayed, they all slumbered and slept. At midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should be, not be enough for us and you. But rather go to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And so the picture of the ten virgins or the ten bridesmaids is a picture of a Jewish wedding. And so I just want to give you a little bit of background on Jewish weddings because I think it will help us understand this parable. All right. So a Jewish courtship and wedding is a little bit different than how we do it in the Western culture, all right? So first of all, it was common in ancient Israel for the father of the groom to select his bride for his son. How many of you think that's kind of a cool idea? Probably no teenage girl is going to say amen to that, all right? But how many of you know that parents usually have a pretty good grasp 
over what their, their children need. But anyway, it was custom back then for the father of the groom to select. How many of you remember the, the TV show, Father Knows Best? All right? It has nothing to do with the scripture today. It's just something I thought of, and I had too much time on my hands. But anyway, Father Knows Best. And so Jewish culture, it was often the father that would pick out a bride for his uh, son. And by the way, the Bible reminds us that God the Father chose us to be Christ's bride. There are several verses. In Ephesians 1, it says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. I just want to remind you that God the Father chose us to be the bride of Christ. Jesus said in John's Gospel that no man can come to the Father except my Father draw him. And so you can't come to Jesus unless the Father draws. Peter says we're a chosen generation. So I believe the Father chooses us. Now many people would ask, if the father of the groom chooses the bride for his son, does the bride have any say-so? Yes. All right. Yes, she does. And so uh, the story of, of Rebecca, you remember in uh, Genesis chapter 24, Abraham was going to choose a, a wife for his son Isaac and he sent out one of his servants and when he went to get Rebekah he prayed because he went to a well he said God send a young lady here that will offer me something to drink and some water for my camels and I'll know that's the one that you sent and right after he prayed that here comes Rebekah she offered him a drink she offered water for the camels and so he shared the story with her. He went back to her house and shared with her parents what God had, had showed him. And his parents said to Rebecca, will you go with him? So even though the father picks out the bride, the bride still has a say-so, all right? She still could agree or disagree. And so she said, Rebecca said, I will go. And so again, the father picks out the bride. Number two, the obvious, the bridegroom goes to the bride's house. Some of you think that's always a good idea to go to the bride's house. I just want to remind you that our bridegroom was willing to come down. The Bible says in Matthew, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. That our bridegroom loved us so much that he was willing to leave his home in glory and come down here where we live to dwell among us. The third thing that would happen is bridal payment, all right? So they would agree on an amount, and he would give a payment for the bride. And that payment went to the bride, by the way, but that payment that they agreed on was him saying, I'm giving you this as a guarantee that I'm coming back, all right? I'm going to come back, and he wanted to assure the bride that I will come back. And so they agreed on this amount, and they had a bridal payment. Our bridegroom also gave a payment. The Bible says that he died for us so that you and I could spend an eternity with him in heaven. And I love that, that scripture in Hebrews that says, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And so as the a bridegroom would pay a, an amount to the bride, we also have a bridegroom that paid the ultimate price. And later in the service, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper to be reminded of the ultimate love that Jesus has for us. And then I love how the Bible says a couple places there in 2 Corinthians that God has given us his spirit as a guarantee that he's coming back. You say, how do we know he's coming back? Jesus gave us his spirit as a guarantee. I am going to come back. And so we need to wait 
for our bridegroom to come. Number four, they would agree on a covenant, which they called a ketubah, and they would share a glass of wine. Once they agreed on everything, they would celebrate by drinking a glass of wine, and then they would not drink wine again until the marriage supper. And so it's interesting what Jesus said as he was with his disciples on that last night. He took the cup and gave thanks and said, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. One day we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper with the bridegroom. One day we're going to be drinking wine together with the bridegroom as they do in Jewish culture. Jesus said when he handed out the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, this do in remembrance of me. And so he says, I'm making a new agreement with you. It's not based as the old agreement or the first covenant that you have to do your part and then I'll do my part. The second covenant is I'm willing to die so that you can live. The second covenant is not based on our performance, but is based on the sacrifice that Jesus gave on the cross. A fifth thing they would do, they would have a ritual immersion. They would both be baptized separately, symbolic of the spiritual cleansing and being set apart for each other. You know, it's kind of interesting that you know, when bab baptism, again, a way to kind of show your separation, your, your loyalty to each other. I never thought about it till this week, and I don't know if it's altogether right. Somebody out there will help me out. But, you know, Jesus was baptized, obviously not because of any sin or anything like that, but I thought to myself, what? What if the, the bridegroom was willing to be baptized just to show his separation to the bride and his love for the bride? And one of the first things we do when we accept Christ into our life is to get baptized. Why do we get baptized? To show the world that we've been separated from the world and we are dedicated to the bridegroom. It really is a beautiful picture of loyalty to God and our separation from the world and how much we love the bridegroom. And then the bridegroom would return to his father's house to prepare a place for his bride. And so he would go back, and he wouldn't come back until he was ready to get his bride. But in Jewish culture, they wouldn't move across town or in the next city. Often they would build a room on to the father's house. Now in Israel, even today, you'll see houses with several floors that are unfinished. And it seems like they started to build and just didn't have enough money. But what is, I was told by the, the guide, is these men would build a, a floor for each of their sons. And each time a son got engaged, he would finish off a floor for his bride. But they would come back and they would live at the father's house. But he would work on that house and get it fixed up. But it was only when the father of the groom said, it's ready, you can go get your bride. The father of the, of the groom is the one that had to decide when it was ready. And it always had to be better than where she was living now. But the father of the bridegroom, isn't that interesting when Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour but who? My father in heaven. He's been working on our place for 2,000 years. How many of you think it's going to be pretty amazing? But one day the father's going to say to the son, go get your bride. One day he's going to come again. It's going to be on an armel every day when he comes to get the church. And uh, the Bible says in Zechariah there that he's going to come back and set foot on the Mount of Olives. So I believe that he left from the Mount of Olives. He'll return from the Mount of Olives. The last thing 
just and the wedding custom, the bride would keep herself pure and prepare for her wedding day. I've had the privilege of doing about 250 weddings over 41 years. How many of you know doing weddings is stressful? Especially on the bride and the bride's mom, I'm just saying. I'm not always true, but probably 90, 95% of the details are worked out by the bride and the bride's mom. And the, husband, the, the groom just goes where he's supposed to go, stands where he's supposed to stand, and everything works out. And that's a good start to marriage, by the way. You just do what you're told, go where you go, and that, everything works out. I often tell the groom, remember, you always get the last two words. Yes, ma'am. And everything will go fine, all right? And so while we're waiting for the Lord, you say, why is it important to understand the marriage of the Lamb? Because every day you should be preparing your heart your life, you should be dedicating yourself to God because when he comes back, you want to be living the life. You want to be pleasing him when the bridegroom comes back. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I think God wants us to understand there is going to be a marriage. We're waiting for the bridegroom to come, and one day he will come, and he will take the bride home. That's why it's important every day, again, to just be preparing our heart to be pleasing to God. So let's get back to the ten virgins. It's all about this wedding feast. And these would have been bridesmaids, what we would call bridesmaids. A bride would pick out these ten young ladies, and so all of them would be connected to the bride. They would either be family, friends, neighbors, but they were all people connected to the bride. That number 10 is kind of interesting because 10 is mentioned 242 times in the Bible. I think it, it seems to me it's connected to Jewish life and religion. Uh, 10 times in Genesis 1, it uses the phrase, God said. That's 10 times there. God said that he would spare Sodom for 10 righteous people. God gave the people 10 commandments. The tenth day of the first month was the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. The tenth day of the seventh month was the day of atonement. Boaz chose ten elders to witness his marriage to Ruth. Solomon made ten lavers, ten candlesticks, and ten tables for the temple. The Bible says that there had to be ten men in order to form a synagogue. So the number ten shows up over and over and over in Jewish life and culture. So we find in this particular parable, five of the, the virgins were foolish and five were wise. That word foolish means thoughtless, silly, and careless because they did not prepare. They were planning to go to the supper, but they did not prepare. By the way, that word foolish is the Greek word moros. Can anybody think of an English word that we get from moros? They were morons, all right? That's where we get the word. They just did not engage their brain. You know, we might say they had only one oar in the water. Their elevator doesn't go all the way up. They're one fry short of a happy meal. We have a lot of different things. But five were foolish because they did not prepare for delay. Even though they knew they wanted to go, they were planning on going, but they flat out did not prepare. I cannot tell you how many people have said to me, I'm going to make a commitment to God, but I'm going to do it down the road. I'm going to put off making that decision. And so this parable reminds us, do not put off, do not delay making a decision 
for God. Five of them were wise, which means they were far-sighted, practical, and sensible because they not only took their lamps, but they took extra oil as well. And the Bible says at midnight there was a shout. Now often in Jewish culture, when the bridegroom came for the bride, it would be at night. And so again, kind of a strange culture as we think about it, but the bride had to be ready because she did not know when the bridegroom was coming. She didn't want to get caught with curlers in her hair, amen? And so she had to be ready, had to have a light on outside. And so at midnight, and by the way, that word midnight is kind of a significant word because midnight for some is the end of a day, but midnight for others is the beginning of a new day. And I just want to tell you, when the bridegroom comes back, it's going to be the beginning of an eternity with God. And we don't know when that's going to be. I love how Thessalonians says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. Those who have died in Christ will be raised first. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And by the way, can I say this? In our culture, it's 95% about the bride. I mean, when you hear someone describe a wedding, it's how beautiful the bride was, she was magnificent. And, I, and then I, they throw in somewhere, and the groom was also present. But it's 95% about the bride, and I'm okay with that, by the way. I'm okay with that. But in Jewish culture, it was just the opposite. It was about the bridegroom. As a matter of fact, when they got engaged about a year or so before the wedding, they were considered married. And according to Jewish custom, only the bridegroom could call off the wedding. Only the bridegroom had that authority. And the excitement in a Jewish wedding is when the bridegroom is coming for his bride. And so they're coming in the middle of the night. How many of you know if you live next door to a bride that's getting ready to get married you may lose your sleep. And they would blow the shofar, and those shofars are annoyingly loud. But they would blow out, and, and one of the grooms would holler out, Behold, the groom is coming! Behold, the groom is coming! You say, well, it doesn't sound fair that only the bridegroom could call it off. But I just want you to think about it. Only Jesus could call off our relationship, and he's not. Aren't you glad that we can't make that decision? And so in Jewish culture, the bridegroom is coming. And so this is the setting. These ten virgins are all slumbering and sleeping. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, when they least suspect it, because if they were expecting it that night, they would have all been up. They would have all been ready. And so again, over and over, the emphasis is going to come when we least suspect it. That's why we got to be ready every day because one day our bridegroom's going to call us home and we're going to step into eternity. What a beautiful picture. Then all those virgins got up and put their own lamps in order. They trimmed the wicks, added oil, and lit them. But the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil. They didn't prepare. Now again, there's a lot of different thoughts about what the lamps, what the virgins, but the oil seems to be symbolic of the Holy Spirit. They had put off the most obvious thing, they need oil. They need oil for that journey, and so they had put off making that most important decision. The wise said, no, go and buy for yourself. Now let me just say, who's going to be open at midnight? But the, the foolish, the morons, they head into town to buy oil at midnight. Not very wise, all right? So they're not going to get any oil. So they head in to get oil. 
It says, while they were going away to buy oil, which obviously they weren't going to get at midnight, the bridegroom came. Those that were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. The door was shut and locked. And a wedding feast in Jewish culture, it really is a celebration. I mean, when we think about a, a married supper, we have a meal, we do a little bit of dancing, this, that, and the other, and then, you know, it's a one-night deal. For Jewish culture, they have about a seven-day celebration. I mean, they go all out. It is crazy celebration at the marriage supper. And I believe that's why when John saw just a glimpse of it in heaven, when John realized that God loves us so much that he not only wants us in heaven, but he wants to become one with us, I think he was blown away by that idea. It's amazing to think one day we're going to be joined together with God. That's why he says, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You don't want to miss that event. He says, later the others came also. And again, can I just give credit to the foolish? Can I give credit to these five morons? That they wanted to go in. They planned to go in. I mean, it wasn't like they didn't want to go in. It wasn't like they didn't intend. They wanted to go in. They just didn't prepare because they put off the most important decision in their life. Over the past probably 10, 12 weeks, I've had the privilege of doing about two funerals a week. It has been crazy, the number of funerals. And I get calls for families who do not have a church home. And I always consider it a tremendous honor to do a funeral. And here's what I feel, if this person didn't have a church home, maybe their family didn't have a church, and what an opportunity to get into a room full of people and share that in the midst of their loss, there's hope on the other side, that Jesus loved them, that he's got something waiting on the other side. I love how Solomon says, the day of death is better than the day of birth. And Solomon had everything in this world, yet Solomon knew that what God had waiting on the other side was better. And I'm just telling you, don't get discouraged. Don't get depressed by all the craziness of this world. It's all temporary. One day, when we least suspect it, the king is going to come back. We're going to eject out of these earth suits, and we're going to go and be with the Lord. And there's going to be an amazing celebration in heaven when we be able to, get, again, join together with our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think about the words when he says here, I do not know you, how sad. How sad it is that they planned to go, they wanted to go, but they did not have a relationship with the bridegroom. Now, I don't know who these ten virgins are. I mean, I've read, I've heard so many different opinions. I'm just going to give you my opinion real quick. I think these ten virgins, to me, are symbolic of the nation of Israel. And I think during that tribulation period, there's going to be a revival among the Jewish nation. I think there's going to be 144,000 Jews that God is going to raise up, 12,000 from each tribe, who's going to preach the gospel of the kingdom in the world. That's why in Revelation 7, John sees people, a multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who have come out of the tribulation. I think there's going to be an amazing revival during that seven-year period before Christ comes back. I think five are going to be ready. Five are going to make that decision and accept God's plan. But I believe there are Jews today who are the most devoted that you can imagine. I mean, they're unbelievably committed to God. They're waiting for the Messiah. They're just as much waiting for the Messiah the first time as we are the second time. 
but yet they do not know Jesus. They do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know, but I think there are going to be some people who, who are morally good people who are planning to go to heaven, but have never had a relationship with Jesus. I think one of the toughest funerals I've had over the last few weeks was a young man, I call a young man, 33 years old, who committed suicide. It was so extremely tough. And talking to his brother, he had no church background at all. And so I always, I mean, the, the, the room was packed full of people. And Brenda will often ask when I come home, what kind of response did you get? And sometimes, almost in every funeral service, you'll see somebody back there nodding. I mean, you can just see people agreeing that there is hope. But that was one funeral service for almost the entire service. I looked out and just blank stares. But I, I, with all of my heart, I wanted to share the love of Jesus. With all of my heart, I just shared to him, there's more than this life. I believe that this guy did not die alone. I believe Jesus was there. And I just want to give you hope that there is something beyond this life. And I was able to share that God loved them and Jesus died for them. I pray that not one person would leave that room without knowing Jesus. I have no idea who made that decision. But I never want to miss an opportunity to tell people today is the day. Do not miss that opportunity. I think about in Matthew 7 when many, Jesus said many are going to come in that day saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these mighty things? And he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. Can you think of anything sadder than to spend your life serving a God that you do not know? And thinking because you're performing and because you're doing all these things that somehow your performance is going to get you to heaven. I just want to remind you, good people don't go to heaven and bad people don't go to hell. The only way we go to heaven is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's why these parables remind us, be ready. How in the world could you believe there's going to be an eternity and put off the most important decision ever? How in the world could you really believe and walk away and not know Jesus? But there's going to be a lot of people that have good intentions, good morals. As a matter of fact, let's just kind of summarize real quick. God did not judge the virgins because of their number, because five were wise and five were foolish. He did not judge them because of their morality, because all ten were virgins. They were all morally pure. He did not judge them because of their intentions, because all ten planned on going in. He didn't judge them because they had or didn't have lamps, because all ten had lamps. He didn't even judge them because of what they were doing, because they were all slumbering, because he delayed in coming. Can I just say this? Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is sleep. And some of you do it on Sundays, amen? But anyway, I just threw that out there, but I understand. But they were all slumbering. All ten were connected to the bride. I mean, when you think about it, they were all so similar. And just like in the other stories of the two women grinding, the two men in the field, the two people in the bread, in the bed, these ten were all connected to the bride. So there had to be a connection, yet five made it and five didn't. Again, one of the saddest things as I study the second coming is to know that when he comes back, there's going to be a separation of families, there's going to be a separation of friends, 
And it isn't that some are better than others, but we need to have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so he ends by saying, as he does in the first two, Therefore, be alert, be prepared and ready, for you do not know the day or the hour that the Son of Man will come. Take a moment and just pray together. I want to ask you to stand right where you are. If we could just somehow get a glimpse that one day we're going to celebrate in heaven. That while we're waiting for the second coming, we don't just sit back and twiddle our thumbs, but I think God wants us again to live every day as though this were the last day. I think he wants us to stay busy serving the body of Christ. But he also wants us to know that there could be a delay and that we need to make sure that we're preparing in case there's a delay. I want to pray a prayer. And I just want to encourage you, if you're here today, if you're not 100% sure that if you were to die today, that you would spend an eternity with God. Or if Jesus were to come back today, if today were the day that the bridegroom came, do you know that you would be taken because you have a personal relationship with Jesus? It's not about having your your name on a church roll but it's about having your name on the Lamb's book of life and knowing that you've committed your life to Christ. I want to pray a simple prayer, and if you're here today or maybe you're listening, I just want to encourage you to pray this prayer from your heart to God's. It's not important that you pray every word the same, but it is important that you're honest. Dear Jesus, I realize today that you love me so much that you died on the cross for my sin. I ask you to forgive me. I open up the door of my heart. I invite you into my life as Lord and Savior. From this day forward, my life belongs to you. Thank you for saving me. If you prayed that prayer, I want to encourage you to share it with somebody before you leave today. There's something about sharing that that really, I think, cements it in our life. And before we leave, I want us to celebrate communion together. And again, if you think about in Jewish culture, they would take wine together as Jesus did with his disciples on the last night. But again, he said to them, I won't take it again until the kingdom. One day we'll sit down with the Lord and celebrate communion. I hope it never becomes routine as you think about the body of Christ and him dying for us. So if you will, there's kind of a clear cellophane off the top there. If you want to peel that back and get to the wafer. If you're visiting with us, is there anybody here that did not get a, a, a cup that would like a cup? Anybody here? All right, there's back here. Anybody else? Keep your hand up if you will. And they're going to come around. I'm going to wait just a minute. Keep your hand up and they'll make sure you get one. Anybody else on this side? Everybody good? So we're going to take both together in just a minute. And Jesus said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, two things. First of all, we proclaim the Lord's death. We We proclaim that he died for us, and he said, I want you to do it until I come again. 
So we're also saying we believe in the second coming of Jesus. I just want to encourage you every day. Let's get up every day and just prepare ourselves for that marriage and just, just love on the Lord and live every single day to the fullest. So again, eat the bread, drink the cup, do it in remembrance of him. Let's, let's celebrate together. If you will, on your way out, if you'll just drop that in the trash can. Also, again, there's a box back there if anybody feels led to, to help with the Sarah Project. Again, don't feel like you have to, but we're just going to try to pull together and help her. I love you guys. I love talking about the second coming. And again, over and over, it says, be ready, be watchful. And hopefully every day, we live every day to the fullest. Let me pray for you, and then we'll close with a song. Father, fill us with your spirit. I thank you for loving us enough to be willing to come and to die on the cross so that we could spend an eternity with you. And God, I pray that every single person in this room is there for that reunion on the other side because they've trusted you as their Lord and Savior. Father, fill us with your spirit. I pray that we would take extra oil every single day and just allow your spirit to flow through all that we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen.